Last Sunday evening, we, in our study of authority, came to the checks of authority, and those instructions of Scripture that give men freedom from the oppression of rulers that could take advantage of their lives, turn them away from their God, lead them into error. The Word of God is a book that makes men free. It has always been so. Where Scripture has been practiced and understood and read and obeyed, it makes men free. Though we might preach authority and exalt it to high levels, Scripture still saves men from superstition, from ignorant submission to authority, and gives them a Bible basis for proper rebellion and other checks of authority to take a stand based on their conscience and what God has shown them from Scripture. The Word of God has made men great. The Word of God has been the foundation for wise changes that have taken place in small situations, in families, in businesses, and in nations where men have realized that they ought to obey God rather than men. And so the Bible, while it teaches authority very much and sets it at a high position for us to esteem it, also gives us rules to protect us and gives us the basis for courageous hearts and gives us the basis that when God is on our side and he's convinced us of something, it doesn't matter whether men agree with us or not, we ought to obey Holy Scripture. We looked at a couple of those points last evening. We want to review them very briefly tonight and then go forward. The first great check of authority is the knowledge that God is the absolute master of our universe. And I'd like you to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8, for the, a reminder of the first point that we covered last evening. Under this first point, I made several distinctions. One of them is God is the absolute check of authority in the fact that he has purposed and approved all men that are in authority. In Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 8, If thou seest the oppression of the poor, and violent perverting of judgment, and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter. For he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. This text tells us that when oppression occurs in a province, we ought not to marvel at the matter, it ought not to amaze us, it ought not to distract us, it ought not to lead us to want to overthrow authority. It ought to lead us to recognize that there is a God that is higher than those, and he regards such oppression and such perverting of justice and judgment. So one of the first great checks of authority is that there is a God that rules over all men that are in authority. So when we see oppression, we need not fear it if we believe in God. We need not fear oppression if we have confidence in God, because God regards. It ought not to cause fear in our hearts. If you're afraid of authority, because of the way it's exalted, that you don't have sufficient faith in God. Because sufficient faith in God says don't marvel at the matter. God is still in control. That's the first great check or the first distinction of his check in authority. The second is that he always delivers those that are under oppression. We can look at a number of verses, but let's look at Judges chapter 2. 
Judges chapter 2, one we looked at last Sunday evening. When we look at God as the absolute check of authority in the universe, there are several ways you want to see it. First, that those in authority are in authority by His approval. Judges chapter 2. The second point we want to look at is that God delivers those that are under oppressive rulers. He doesn't just regard. Now Ecclesiastes 5, 8 said he regards. This text will tell us he delivers. Judges chapter 2 and verse 18, And when the Lord raised them up, judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. When people are under oppression and being vexed, by an oppressive ruler, God hears their grieving. The God of heaven regards the matter, as Ecclesiastes 5.8 told us, but not only does he hear, he does something about it. He raises up men to deliver them. And some of those men may not always be the most godly men, but he'll raise up men to deliver nonetheless. And he will deliver those people that cry unto him that are under oppressive rulers. He is also the great check of authority by his ability to move the hearts of men, especially the hearts of those that are in authority. I can just quote for you Proverbs 21 and verse 1, the, heart, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. And that will may include even evil, as we saw in Revelation 17, 17, where God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and that's to give their kingdoms to the beast. I hope you remember that text. If anyone ever tells you that the will of God does not include the evil deeds of men, just remember Revelation 17, 17, if you don't remember any other verse. He hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to give their kingdoms to the beast. God is a check by his ability to control the hearts of rulers. God is also a check by the way that he can turn governments upside down. Why, Nebuchadnezzar learned the great lesson that God setteth up kings and he putteth down kings. He can take kings out of office by death. He can defeat the power of kings by revolt in their own kingdom. He can cause dreams to come upon men like Pharaoh so that they would promote a man from the innermost prison to be first in Egypt but for Pharaoh. God can do all these things and he is the first great absolute check of authority. If there is any fear in the heart of someone who hears authority exalted like it has been for the last eight weeks, these are the answers to give you comfort. If there's a God in heaven, we can still esteem authority highly, obey it completely, submit to it cheerfully, knowing that there is a God on our side who has not only told us to do this, but who controls those men in authority like puppets. Amen. And I don't say by that analogy that they are not responsible for their actions. But the Bible says way too many times that evil rulers are, in one case, like a saw. And God just shakes it. Amen. Now that's about like a puppet, wouldn't you say? Now they're still responsible for their actions before God. And God will punish them for what they cut down while he shakes them. But he's still in control of them. When you've got a God like that, you can submit to authority and be confident. Joseph submitted to the authority of Potiphar, was thrown into prison for it, but God still delivered him. And he had confidence in God. Because of that, 
Because that God is the absolute check of authority, the first point I want to make, we therefore have, as a second check of authority, prayer. If we live in a nation where our national leaders are making decisions that are to our detriment, as they have been doing, it is our duty to pray. It is our privilege to pray. And it is a check on their authority to pray. And we can accomplish by a few fervent men praying more than they can accomplish in an open market committee meeting of the Federal Reserve. If we trust in God and beg Him, as He has told us to do, for His overruling of their ignorance or their wickedness. But we're to pray that God will so move them as the rivers of water, <clears throat> whithersoever He might turn them, that we might have quiet and peaceable lives. Listen, we have lived in a nation with a great deal of quiet and peace. We do not know what it's like to live in Beirut, Lebanon. We do not know what it's like to be curved in northern Iraq. We don't know what it's like to live in other parts of the, of the globe where there's constant rebellion and unrest and noise, political noise. We've had quiet and peace. I believe it's because there's a great number of people in this nation praying for it. We deserve some of that ourselves. So the second great check is to beg God on behalf of our nation and its rulers. To beg God on behalf of the men you work for. For a more peaceful place to work. To beg God for your husband that God will bless him with wisdom, preserve him, keep him, guide him. That you might have a peaceful home. We ought to pray for all that are in authority. That is the second check that God has given us on rulers taking advantage of us. First of all, it's confidence in God that he regards and he saves and that it's praying for God to continue to intervene on our behalf. Now we come to a third check of authority. The third check of authority that God gives us in his word is scripture itself. The Bible is a check on authority. The Bible is a check on authority in several ways. First of all, and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. The Bible is a check on authority in that it not only teaches submission by those under authority, it teaches prudence and kindness and fairness on the part of those in authority. And while we have not looked at those verses yet in this study, they are here now for us to see. And anyone... Whoever hears the word of God finds out that scripture not only teaches wives to submit, it also teaches husbands to love. It not only teaches children to obey, it teaches fathers not to provoke them to anger. It teaches in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 19, verse 22, for servants to obey in all things your master according to the flesh. Now there is a word for servants in Colossians 3.22. And we see God dealing with servants through the end of that chapter, but we come to the first verse of chapter 4, and the first word of that verse is masters. Give unto your servants that which is just and equal. The third check of authority in this world is God's revelation on how he wants men in authority to behave themselves, and so that is a protection for us by the fact that God has given us his word. Now, I know that you may be saying, but what about a man who doesn't believe the Bible? Well, let's just set him aside for a moment. Right now, we're dealing with those that know the Word of God. The Word of God is a check in their lives by instructing them how they must behave. 
in this congregation, it is not just that wives are taught to submit. Husbands are taught their duties on their side of the ledger. Both are taught because the Word of God teaches both. It's not that we just teach servants to submit to masters. Masters are taught to give their servants that which is just and equal. And if you were to go back and review the series of messages called the Bible and Employment, you would see that both were dealt with. Because the Bible deals with both. It's just that most of us are servants. Therefore, the emphasis is on the servants, but the word is still there for the master. You know the Bible over there, some women, you know, I, I suppose, I haven't ever been one, but I suppose that women, when they read 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, where it's describing being in subjection to their husbands of all fear and reverencing their husbands as Sarah did, calling Abraham Lord, they, they think, wow, that's a lot for me to do. But don't forget the seventh verse that follows the first six, where the Apostle Peter writes, And husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. There we have it. When God deals with those under authority, he is also providing a check on those in authority because they owe their responsibility to God. <clears throat> now look at Proverbs chapter 29. The first point I want to make is that God deals with both, those under authority and those in authority. Now look at Proverbs 29 for one of those examples of where God teaches wisdom, not for those under, but for those in a position of authority. Proverbs 29, 21. How many times through the book of Proverbs does the wise man call upon his son to obey him, to hear his word, to take heed, the law of his father, the law of his mother? But it's not just that. There's also some words of wisdom for those in authority. Proverbs 29 and verse 21. He that delicately bringeth up his servant from a child shall have him become his son at the length. Now, if we were just to preach Exodus 21, where you can beat your servant to... I don't like using those words. Where you can beat your servant, and if he dies over 24 hours later, God considers that your money, and you are free. Now, if we were simply to emphasize passages like that, we would have a distorted view of what God wants in this world. This text does not speak about masters going around beating servants, does it? What is the word that's used? What's a word that we don't like to think of as real American men? Delicate. Oh, that sounds effeminate almost, doesn't it? To be delicate. But Proverbs 29, 21 tells us, He that delicately bringeth up his servant, therefore it must be a... What position of authority? Master that's under consideration. What the master that delicately bringeth up his servant from a child shall have him become his son at the length. If you simply bring up your servant with a rod, when he becomes of age, what will he do? He'll say goodbye. But what did a servant have the option to do in the Old Testament? Brother John, you were just reading this. If that servant liked his master, what could he do? Couldn't he walk over to a post, hold his earlobe out, and that master could all hole right through it, and he would be permanently his servant? What could you do to get a servant to want to do that? You know, all we know about servants and slaves in this country is that they ought to rebel. Because that's what we've been fed since we were born. 
But in the Bible, a master can bring up servants in such a way that they'd like to have a hole drilled through their ear so that they can remain there the rest of their lives. But how do you do it? Delicately. My point? Scripture's a check. You just don't get away with reading Exodus 21. At some point, you're going to run into Proverbs 29. And it says that masters ought to treat their servants delicately. And if you do it delicately, you're going to have one loyal servant. He'll be willing to spend the rest of his life with you and become your son. That's the check of Scripture for the men who read it. You know, the Bible gives wisdom, doesn't it? It says in Psalm 119 that it makes us wiser than our teachers, our ancients, and our enemies. In Psalm 119, verses 98 through 100. And do you know what that does? When there is a book called the Bible in the hands of men that gives them wisdom, it puts fear in the hearts of rulers. This book has always created fear for rulers. Do you want to know why your nations of this world, like Red China, under the leadership and authority of Mao Zedong, Bibles were burned? Not just because, not just because those Bibles taught about Jesus Christ that that man denied. These Bibles teach men to stand on their consciences before God. And that is an unnerving thing to have in the nation that you want to keep under your thumb. The Pope of Rome had to keep this book out of the hands of the common people because this book could give those people wisdom. And if they had wisdom, guess what? They weren't going to drop coins into coffers to get souls out of purgatory. They were no longer going to sit in Latin masses and believe that a cracker was God. There's wisdom in this book, and men hate this book because of that. It frees people from ignorance and superstition. And therefore, leaders cannot take advantage of them like they could without it. It's a book that sets men free. It makes men wiser than their teachers and the ancients. And that's an unnerving thing to have if you want to control the very way your subjects think. Look at 1 Samuel 18. Let me give you an example of that. 1 Samuel 18. It is unnerving to a king who has relied on superstition and your ignorance to keep you submitting to him. It is unnerving for a man to come along who is well grounded in the word of God and knows how to behave himself wisely because that king knows that that man has the wisdom to make better decisions than he does and has the wisdom to see through his deceit <clears throat> and it's fearful. Let me give you an example. First Samuel 18. We have the young man David who wrote those words in Psalm 119 about meditating upon the word of God giving him wisdom. And we read this. Verse 12, And Saul was afraid of David. First Samuel 18, 12. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. When a man sees that God's blessing and wisdom is with another man, it puts fear in his heart. Let's read verse 15. Let's read verse 14. And David behaved himself wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Wherefore, when Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, because he went out and came in before them. Now, if you had a man that came out and went before you, was well known, his reputation was one of wisdom, and the Lord was with him, wouldn't everyone love that man? 
Everyone would love that man except the man of authority who had used ignorance to keep people under his rule. And then he came that could, just for the whim, try to take the life of David, must have had people pretty well under his thumb. King Saul, who could disobey the commandments of God almost at will, and the people never objected, must have had the people of Israel under his thumb. And along comes a man that put fear in his heart because David behaved himself wisely. And that put Saul in fear. And when there are a group of men in a nation that have the word of God and behave themselves wisely, and they are known to have answers, it puts fear in the hearts of rulers. Let's follow that all the way down. If a pastor knows that he has church members who know the word of God and who behave themselves wisely, it is a constant check on his ministry. He must always be thinking that he cannot pull the wool over the eyes of all of his congregation because there's wise men there. If a father has children who just don't say how high when dad says jump, always, but in their minds to some degree prove things and are wise in wanting to obey scripture, it is a check on the father. If a husband has a wife who is wise and understanding, he will not get away with her in the things that a man who has a wife in amazement will get away with. A master who has employees and servants that are wise will have a check placed on him just by the sheer presence of wisdom. Being able to see through, it's a check and it comes from the word of God. David was wise because he meditated upon scripture. Come back to Psalm 119. Look at another verse. It's there. Psalm 119. Saul was afraid of David because he behaved himself wisely. You think you want to promote him because he behaved himself wisely. It was frightening to King Saul to see a man that was doing everything right. Constant check on authority comes from Scripture. Look at Psalm 119, verse 46. Verse 46, David said, I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. The average man, the average man educated the schools of the king, if there's any education provided at all for the common people, would stand before the king and be very ashamed and would, say, and would do whatever the king told him to do if, like most kings, the people are kept in some degree of ignorance. But the word of God is able to give men something to be able to speak of before kings and they don't have to be ashamed. You have, if you have listened and learned anything over the last years that we've been together, things from Scripture that if you were ever called to stand in the presence of our president, you could speak of the testimonies of God, you would not have to be ashamed. You would have an advantage that men that do not have the Scriptures have. And that advantage has been used before, as men have stood before kings in Europe and called for religious liberty that they might worship their God in religious liberty, whether it be Martin Luther or others who, because of Scripture, could stand and boldly in court with everyone against them, say, here I stand and I can do no other because they're based on Holy Scripture. The Word of God is a check on authority. It addresses masters. It warns masters on how they ought to behave toward those under their authority. And it gives wisdom and confidence 
to those under authority, which is a constant check on those in authority. Every husband that has a wise and understanding wife knows he can't get away with some of the things he would if his wife was simply a yes woman. And by that I mean there are times, and we shall get to that, where God expects wives and children and members and servants and yea citizens to stand up for what Scripture has taught them. It's a constant check on authority. Let's move to check number four, which is closely related. Once we have the Scriptures, the Scriptures teach us that we're to prove all things. Could the, could the Bereans have been led to Guyana? Could the Bereans have been led to Guyana and moved to drink the pink Kool-Aid or whatever color it was that caused the death of themselves and their children? In Acts 17.11, I'm told enough about those Bereans that I believe they could not have been taken advantage of like that because of their nobility. Noble people aren't taken advantage of like that. Acts 17 and verse 11, speaking of the Bereans, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind. There's their subjection to authority and search the scriptures daily whether those things were so. There's their check on authority. Now you see both in one verse, with all readiness of mind, they were ready to hear whatever Paul had to say. They were ready to hear it. But once they heard it, they made sure in their mind that there was a scriptural basis for it. And they searched the scriptures daily to make sure those things were in agreement with scripture. And I remind you once again that the Bereans did this of an apostle who could raise the dead. A Jim Jones who couldn't raise the dead, couldn't even live a consistent life, would have been found out by the Bereans very early on. This is a check of authority, proving all things. But I never want to get out of balance nor out of proper order what this verse teaches. First, receive the word of those in authority with all readiness of mind. Come submissive. Come willing to hear. Come giving the benefit of the doubt. But as you hear... And as you have opportunity, search the scriptures to see if those things are so. That is a check on authority. That is the same check that the apostle wrote up in 1 Peter 3, 6, when he told women to be in subjection to their husbands with all fear, but not with amazement. What would amazement be? Consternation, confusion, shock. So overwhelmed by your husband's authority that you're not able to think about what he's asking you to do, nor think, wait a minute, wait a minute, I shouldn't be doing this. I've got to draw a line. This isn't right. That's fear with amazement. That's submission that goes too far. God wants people to receive a word with all readiness of mind, and every wife ought to receive the word of her husband with all readiness of mind. And yet, make sure that what he's requiring of her is scriptural. And those of you who are who are knowledgeable in the scriptures, you won't have to spend much more than a couple nanoseconds on most statements of your husband because you're going to know they fall within his bounds of authority. But when he starts to stray out of that, you better be searching the scriptures and have a basis. The word of God is your check and then proving all things by that word. Here's what the Bible tells us about people who don't want to do this. Proverbs chapter 14. 
Proverbs 14. I'm sorry about my voice, but if your ears can bear it, my throat can bear it. Proverbs 14 and verse 15. Proverbs 14, 15. Here is the opposite of the noble Bereans. The Bereans received the word with all readiness of mind, but they searched the scriptures to see if those things were so. They were doing that to protect themselves from man who could raise the dead, the Apostle Paul. You certainly ought to do that to protect yourself from man who can't cure the flu. Romans 14 and verse 15. The simple believeth every word, but the prudent man looketh well to his going. It is a simple person that simply believes everything he's taught. This is a check looking well to your going. When you are told you ought to do something by your father, husband, master, pastor, or the leader of this nation, you should look well to your going. It's the simple to just say, okay, he said it, therefore I'm going to do it. Sometimes we make the statement that when someone in authority says jump, we ought to say how high. And I hope that whenever we use that illustration, we're only looking at one side and we know that when we say it. And those that hear it know that, that we're only looking at one side. Because the other side would ask, should I jump? Look well to your going. You might not ought to jump. Now in most cases, what we're told to do, you won't even have to go through a formal thought process. You will know that it's within the bounds of the man in authority. But there will be times in every life in here, and most of you have already faced them in churches, in business situations, in your marriages, children have been under parents, where they have been asked to do things that God would not have them do. And they had better be prepared and always ready to search the scriptures and to take a stand against any such request, which we'll get to in a moment. But the first step to get there is to prove whether it's right or not. We don't just impulsively say, I don't like that, so I'm not going to do it. No, you have to use scripture to prove whether a thing is godly or not. And being godly can be a matter of liberty also, because it's the liberty of the man in authority that governs the liberty of the person under authority in things that God has not specified as being either right or wrong. Look at 22, Proverbs chapter 22. Checks on authority. A prudent man foreseeth the evil. Verse 3 of Proverbs 22. A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, with a simple pass on, and are punished. The simple, what do they do? They believe every word. They don't stop. They don't search the scriptures. They don't prove all things. They're in fear with the man. A wise man perceives the evil. He thinks, now wait a minute. What I'm being asked to do contradicts this of God or it contradicts this that I have to do to preserve my life. I can't do that. A simple man doesn't go through that process and he ends up just going forward and being punished. What does this verse tell you about those that suffered under Jim Jones? They were simple. They were simple. They passed on and were punished for it. They first of all left this nation under a guise of religion that did not have scriptural support. But a prudent man looks well to his going. The prudent man foresees the evil and he hides himself. And an easy way to have hidden yourself would be to have left that group. And that is one of the ways to hide yourself sometimes, is to leave a group when it's teaching error. But 
But a person in authority knows that his subjects are proving all things, just the knowledge of that activity is a check. Just the knowledge of that activity is a check. I hope that our children will grow up, and I know that you can't expect of a four-year-old, you can't check very much of anything, but as our children grow up, you know, a wise father is going to hope and he's going to train his children to be checks. And now you hear what I'm saying? Now it's not what it's not what a totalitarian dictator wants. But if you're a wise father, you're going to train your children to nurture and admonition of the Lord, not of yourself. Therefore, when the two of them come in conflict, guess what? One of your little kitties that you changed their diapers is going to come to you and say, Now wait a minute. I don't think we ought to be doing this. Do you know what that would do? Just the thought of that ought to be a check on authority. <laughs> Just the thought of that. That's what ought to happen in a wise home. Women ought to be trained well enough by hearing the preaching of the gospel and having mm. courage to talk to them by a pastor mm. that reminds them of not being in amazement that at times they will say, Husband, whatever. Excuse my go around calling your husband husband necessarily as a husband. I don't think we ought to be doing this in the family. Wow, is that a check on authority? That happens one time in one area. That husband's going to be more careful in other areas. Every church that has a, every pastor of a church where there are wise men that prove all things and once in a while come and remind him that it was hailstones and not stones and things like that. That is always a check. That is always a check. Every time you get up and speak, four hours long, you're wondering, what am I going to say this time that somebody is going to be able to see? But you know, to maliciously take the word of God and try to deceive a congregation like that is very far from any, any wise man's mind when there's a congregation of members proving Slips are one thing, but to intentionally use the word of God to deceive becomes a very difficult thing to even imagine when there's a church like this. I'm not saying I'll never make the attempt. I'd make the attempt at anything, probably. But I know that there's a check in this congregation, and most churches there isn't. In most churches, the minister could get up and preach just about anything. Carefully enough, over a long enough period of time, the people wouldn't even know he'd talk to them alive. Because they don't know the Word of God well enough, and they don't search it well enough, and they don't have the courage to prove all things. They have come to sit back and believe this man who has maybe a PhD and who's talking about Greek and Hebrew, and they just give up. We don't do that here. You have in your own language a Bible, which is a check on authority. And if you use it once in a while, it keeps a check on the ministry. It, the, these checks ought to be in existence at every level of authority. For those that don't believe in the Bible, what if, what if you're under a master or someone who doesn't believe in the Bible? Well, King Saul didn't either. You will still behave yourself in such a wise way that you will still put fear in the hearts of men that are over you, even if they don't believe it. Because you will have answers for dilemmas that they have not seen, and you will behave yourself in such a wise way that you will show them that you have wisdom that they may be lacking. This is a check on authority. It ought to be a check in our homes. 
You have to be a check in this church. Check number five. And you may not think this sounds like a check, but it is. It's obedience. Obedience is a check on the abuse of authority. Because it is a law of nature that those in authority have less reason to want to abuse those that are obedient than those that are disobedient. The Word of God teaches that, and I'll show you. Look at Proverbs chapter 3. I've tried to put these in order, but since God did not write a handbook putting these in order, my order is very subject. You know, sometimes I wish there was a handbook, checks of authority, and I could just go and read it. You know, only I had in my library. So it would sound like I had great stores of wisdom to give you. I have this book that you all can read, and I can't put these in order, but the order that I see emphasized in Scripture. If you want to change it around, you go ahead and do that. But I, I want you to see that obedience is a check on authority. My son, verse 1, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee, bind them about thy neck, break them upon the table of thine heart. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Obedience causes men to grow in favor with God and men. And when we talk about a check on authority, we're talking about some restraint on the person in authority abusing the person under authority. That's what a check is. A check is some limitation or restraint on the abuse of authority that would hurt someone under that authority. But by obedience, by obedience, we grow in favor with men so that the person in authority wants to treat us better. You say, well, it doesn't always work. Well, if it doesn't always work, then when it doesn't work, it's an exception because this is the general rule right here in Proverbs chapter 3. Some of you who in the last several years have applied yourselves more diligently to submit to your masters know what I'm saying is the truth. You are treated better, and there's less abuse of authority because of the way you've treated your masters. You're simply using a very basic technique of pleasing someone else. You please someone else, and it will work to your favor. God teaches us that right here. He teaches it again. In Luke 2.52, when Jesus Christ grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and men, behaving yourself wisely is doing things in such a way that you please other men. Not compromise, but you please them by being diligent and faithful and loyal and so forth. If you pleased God by being obedient to your master, don't you think he'll be on your side? I'm asking you if obedience is a check of authority. If God's on your side, won't things go better for you under authority? He'll give you the desires of your heart, and no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. That's those who walk uprightly. If you're obedient, it's a check in authority. The obedient wife is going to have a husband learn to be more merciful if he's not merciful to begin with. The obedient children are going to have tyrant fathers become more compassionate by their obedience. This is... The word of the Lord, obedience, works. Look at Proverbs 16. Proverbs chapter 16. I want to to prove this point. Check number five is obedience. Have you ever felt like your father was your enemy? Have you ever felt like your husband was your enemy? Have you ever... 
Have you ever felt like your boss was your enemy? Your pastor was your enemy? Here's obedience. Proverbs 16, verse 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. You want to talk about a check in authority? Someone in authority has become your enemy and is taking advantage of you. If your ways please the Lord, and that would be by obedience, God can change that man's heart to be at peace with you, even when he's your enemy. That is by obedience. It is a check on authority. Now that's using God. That is by our obedience, God seeing that obedience and making our enemies to live at peace with God. There may have been a boss you had at work that you didn't think you'd ever get promoted by. And if your ways please the Lord, God's able to change his heart so that he promotes you quickly. God can do that. This is the word of the Lord. But not only that. Look at Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14. That's using God. That's by our obedience. God seeing that obedience. And so God moving the heart of the person that's our enemy. But now you can move his heart directly by your obedience. This is growing in favor with God and men. Proverbs 14 and verse 35. The king's favor is toward a wise servant. But his wrath is against him that causes shame. If you do things that put your king or your master, your husband or your father to shame, you're going to get your wrath. This is common sense, isn't it? Does this take a, 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 an intellectual mind to figure this out? You, you scratch your master's back, he'll scratch yours. Is that plain enough? If you please your master, he'll take care of you. The king's favor is toward a wise servant. It doesn't say toward a wise other king or a wise prince. It says a servant. If he's got a servant that behaves himself wisely by being obedient, favor will be shown that man. And that's not an abuse of authority. That's the, that is the use of authority. That's the blessing of authority. Because guess what a king can do for a servant? <laughs> what can a king do for a servant? I mean, he can take him out of the dungeon and put him on his throne. And how many times has the Word of God described that? We're not talking about little promotions here. We're talking about big ones. And how do you get that done in general? By obedience. Wisdom. Proverbs 14, 35. Look at 16, 20. Proverbs 16:20. He that handleth the matter wisely shall find good. If you learn how to behave yourself wisely, you will find good for doing so. Look at chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 2. This is my favorite verse, I believe, on this point. A wise servant shall have rule over a son that causeth shame, and shall have part of the inheritance among the brethren. Here's a man. He's got three sons. He's got 40 servants. One of those servants is wise. When that man dies, they go to his safety deposit box, and they pull out a piece of paper that says, The Last Will and Testament of John Doe. And they read down that Last Will and Testament, and lo and behold, that man, on his deathbed, in his will, has decreed that that wise servant shall become one of his sons and be given an inheritance along with the brethren. And how did he get that? By getting rid of authority so that it was a partnership between servants and master? Or by behaving himself wisely? 
Now listen, it can so happen that a son can be written out of that will. A wise servant shall have rule over a son. Now can you, you hear that one? Can you hear that will being read? That somebody's been promoted into the inheritance and a son's been cut out. What caused that? The fifth check of authority. Obedience. When a man serves his master well, not only will God bless him in that position of employment, but so will men. God understands the simple law of nature that when you take care of someone, you will eat the fruit of that fig tree. Remember that text? Remember when God said that a man could be his servant? God knew, though, he said he would allow that because of this law of nature. That servant is his money. God knows that a master is only going to beat a servant so severely that he might die if that servant is really terrible. Because he's destroying his own asset. It is a law of nature that men do not destroy their own assets. And if you are an asset for your master, you will not be destroyed. You say, well, I know of a case. Well, if you do know of a case, then it's an exception. The general rule is, masters don't destroy their own assets. You know why? It's the basic tendency of greed. They want what's best for them. And if you're treating them well and causing them to, to advance themselves, they're going to take care of you. God understood that. And obedience is a check and authority. Wise men understand that it's the disobedient that usually get the oppression of the man in authority, the ruler. It's the disobedient that get the wrath of the ruler. It's the obedient that are at peace with him. Number six. You might think this is close to number five, but it's, it's a little different. Yielding is a check on authority. If there is a ruler in your life, whether it be your pastor, your master, your employer, your husband, your father, and they're angry at you, there is a way to put them at peace with you directly, and that is to yield. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Oh, if only we can learn this lesson. Usually, when a master is upset with us, when a husband's upset with us, and irritated us, we usually are going to get back, aren't we? Now, you might not say it that way, and if I called and asked, you might not say it that way, or if your husband asked, you might not say it that way, but you're usually going to get back some way, and you're going to stand up for your rights. And I am not talking about God's rights in this case. I'm talking about your rights, where you don't really have any. But when the spirit of a ruler rises up against us, what do you do? Does your spirit rise up as well? I know the answer to that. By nature, your spirit rises up as well. And there's a war brewing. But the word of God tells us in Ecclesiastes 10.4, If the spirit of the ruler rise up against thee, leave not thy place. Don't go out to fight. For yielding pacifieth great offenses. Even if you've done something that has really irritated your master, yielding to that master can put the whole thing to rest. If you try to defend yourself and leave your place and give excuses for what you did, why you did it, all you're doing is adding fuel to the fire rather than pacifying the whole thing. You can cover it, get rid of it by yielding. Yielding is a check on the abuse of authority. You make a ruler mad, and I'll tell you, the Bible says, 
When a king is angry, there ought to be fear following. You make a proper ruler angry, and there's fear coming. But if you yield to that person's authority, there can be peace. Look at Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15 and verse 1. When, some, when someone in authority is angry at you, wives, when your husbands are angry, are you known for a few grievous words that slip out as you run out of the room, leave the room, roll over in bed, walk away, go for a drive, go shopping, or whatever excuse you use to get away? What kind of words come out of your mouth? Grievous words or soft words? Look at the wisdom of Proverbs 15.1. You want to check on authority? A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. God doesn't qualify this by saying good masters or good rulers. He simply says, where there's wrath, you can diffuse it by soft answers. You use grievous words, and it is like gasoline going on a fire, because it's grievous, 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 grievous. And then the, the ruler is very angry, he's ready to take your hand. Doesn't it happen that way? Isn't, that, isn't the word of God confirmed by your experience? It is exciting to put this principle into practice when someone is really irritated and to use a soft answer and watch it just fall away. That's not an easy thing to do, especially for some temperaments. I mean, some temperaments speak before they think, and they think before they reason. And they say things that they ought not to say. Here's wisdom. If a ruler, I don't care if it's your husband, if he's irritated with you, if you did something terrible, it can, you can cover great offenses just by yielding. And a good woman will learn that. A good woman learns that. Good children learn that. Church members ought to learn that. Pastors ought to learn it. Everyone needs to learn it. This is the point that's very hard for us. But yielding is a check on authority. You irritate a husband, he can make life miserable for you. Any women in here believe that? Don't nod your head. But you all should know that. You irritate a master, he can make life miserable for you. Yielding, pacify. I love that verse. Yielding, pacify. Great offenses. You may have done something that you can cover it. Yielding to your husband, your father, your master. Soft answer, turn up the way wrath. Look at verse 18 of this same chapter. <coughs> Proverbs 15, 18, A wrathful man stirreth up strife, but he that is slow to anger, appeaseth strife. Have you ever had strife in your marriage? Ever had strife in a relationship? How do you get rid of it? Slow down! Calm down! If you're a wrathful man, and you know in our society, a wrathful man is exalted as a real man. Because it's the man that really gets ticked off in a hurry and does something about an offense that is, is shown to be an American hero in our society. But in God's estimation, and when God values men, it's a man that is slow to wrath. Because he can put away strife. He can appease it. But a wrathful man stirs it up. If the, if the ruler was angry, and you come back with an angry response, you have just called forth 
all of his efforts to put you back in your place, and you are creating a war, which in most cases he is going to win because he's the one in authority. So what does wisdom say? Don't leave thy place, for yielding pacifies great offenses. Oh, there's, there's so many verses. Look at chapter 16, verse 14. Proverbs 16, 14. The wrath, the wrath of a king is as messengers of death. You get a king angry, it's like writing your own death sentence. You get a husband angry, and if a husband's a good husband, you are writing yourself into trouble. I'm talking about a ruling husband. When authority is the way it should be, and you treat one with anger, you are placing yourself in a situation where they could write your death sentence. I don't mean literally, but I mean give you trouble. But instead of doing that, the text tells us, but a wise man will pacify it. And how do you pacify it? Yield. Just give. Don't try to defend yourself. Don't try to excuse yourself. Give. Give. Say you're sorry. Yield. Whoever can be angry with someone who's yielding, giving, saying they're sorry, asking for your forgiveness, a soft answer turns away wrath. He said, well, once in a while they might. The general rule, brethren, is taught right here. Soft answers turn away wrath. It's a lesson hard to learn, but it's a lesson worth learning. The fear of a king is as the roaring of a lion. Whoso provoketh him to anger sinneth against his own soul. I like that text. You provoke, you want to see it, it's 20 verse 2. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 2. The fear of the king is as the roaring of a lion. Ever heard a lion roar? I've always wondered how a little pussy cat could make cement tremble. Ever been in a good zoo where a lion roared? How can a little feline make cement tremble? He can shake the cat house in a good zoo. And I'm telling you, if you were in the woods and there weren't bars, I know what you'd do. <laughs> and the second one would be to run, because something else would happen involuntarily. <laughs> that, that noise creates fear. And when you get a king angry, it's the same thing. The fear of a king is as the roaring of a lion. Whoso provoketh him to anger sinneth against his own soul. You make a king angry, that's the dumbest thing. That's like finding a lion asleep in the wood and taking a stick and poking it. <laughs> You're sinning against your own soul. It's like writing the death sentence for yourself. So instead of provoking a king to anger who's got the authority, instead of provoking your husband to anger who's got the authority, your father to anger who's got the authority, yield! Let the sleeping dog lie. Or whatever we want to say. Let it lay. Ignore it. Don't bring it up. Don't excuse. Defend. Give. You say that sounds like a wimpish approach to life. We're supposed to be men, not wimps. I'll tell you the man that can do what I've just described is a very unusual man. There's few of them on this earth. And God says they are men that are greater than men that can take a city because they can rule their own spirit. It is easy to go out with a M60 and shoot people like some of our modern American heroes. It's another thing to be able to take your spirit and rule it in when somebody slaps you across the face or is angry at you. And God estimates the one far higher than the other. A real man is a man that can rule his spirit. The sixth check in authority is yielding. 
That king can be angry, and instead of signing your own death warrant, you can cover the whole thing and appease him, pacify him, even if it's a great offense. There's wisdom there. You want those in authority to treat you well? Have faith in God. Use <coughs> prayer. Learn the scriptures to behave wisely. Help them find the scriptures on their positions of authority. If they come here, they'll hear it. Prove all things. Obey and yield. And you can put away a lot of wrath. The next check in authority that I'd like to deal with is legal recourse. Our nation gives us legal recourse against authority. And we have some other legal recourses at the other spheres of authority, but let me briefly deal with authority in the nation. Look at Esther, chapter 8. Esther, chapter 8. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Job. Esther, chapter 8. There is in most spheres of authority a legal option for you to bring your grievances to the, to the man in authority and have them heard. Now, you ought not to do it unless it's severe. You ought not to do it disrespectfully. You ought never to bring a railing accusation. But sometimes we have legal recourse. Now, in Esther, Haman had got a decree issued which could not be altered by the Persian government that on the 13th day of the 12th month of the year, Every Jew in the entire realm could be destroyed. Now Esther has come and using a legal recourse asks in Esther 8 and verse 5 if the king would please write a letter to protect her. Here's what she said. Now watch the yielding. Watch the submissiveness of asking for something. And women, if you ever learned to ask this way, you could get just about anything you wanted. If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the things seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes. You hear those four statements? Why'd she have to repeat herself four times? I'm going to tell you something. She's smart. She's smart. You have a wife come to you that way and lay those four jewels on you, you'd probably give her half the kingdom. Some of you give her all the kingdom. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do that. Listen to this. This is wisdom. This is the queen. You know, today, would that happen today? The things we read about it, it wouldn't happen today. If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, when things seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, which are in all the king's provinces. Now, the king couldn't write a decree to reverse the first decree. Because once a law was written to the Persian government, you couldn't reverse it. Darius got in that trouble one time when Daniel was in the lion's den. But I'll tell you what he could do. He could write a new decree that on that 13th day of the 12th month, all the, month, all the Jews could stand up and defend themselves. And they did. And it was a glorious victory for the Jews. But I want you to see the legal recourse. She did not send a letter through Mordecai to all the Jews Let's defend ourselves on that day. She got authority from the highest authority in that realm in order to do that. You, you understand. She got legal. She followed an option for legal recourse to have authority behind her doing something instead of taking matters into her own hand. You know, a lot of people might have said, well, listen, they're going to take our lives. 
We have the right to defend our lives. And I'm going to show you that. Which when you have a legal option, you use it. You don't take the law into your own hands, even to defend your own life, if you've got a legal option. She had a legal option and she used it. Look at Ezra. Uh, you don't need to turn there. Remember in Ezra, the, uh, the uh, Jews have come back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the city. The neighboring nations have come to Jerusalem and they, they asked these Jews, by what authority do you think you're building? And they said, our God delivered us into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and punished us for our sins. But a few years ago, Cyrus the king made a decree that this place would be built, and we're doing it by his authority. They used their legal recourse. They didn't say, God is our God, and this is our city, and we'll build it any way we want to. They said, Cyrus gave us a decree, and those nations sent back to the Persian capital and said, search the rolls and see if there was ever such a decree. And the decree was found, and Darius wrote a letter and said, I have found the decree, and it made such good sense to me that I want you people to pay for what they're doing. Now that's using legal recourse. They could have said, God has called us to destroy all the Canaanites. Let's go ahead and build our city and destroy them. They used the legal option they had with the Persian government. Look at Acts 22. Acts chapter 22. We live in a nation where we have many legal recourses. <clears throat> we ought not to neglect them. In fact, we ought to be thankful for them. The Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 22, has just given a speech, and it caused such a commotion among the Jews that he's been hauled in by the chief captain of the Romans. Let's begin reading at verse 23. And as they cried out, these are the Jews who didn't want to hear Paul preach. Acts 22, verse 23. And as they cried out and cast off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging, that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. Now that's not just the way our courts work. <laughs> they wanted to know what Paul was up to, and they felt the simplest way would be to tie his hands over his head Take a Roman can of nine tails and lay his back open. He'd probably tell the truth. I would and you would. And they'd find out very quickly what was going on down there without having to take 90 days to figure out what was going on. Now you can say that'd be nice to have things that way, or you can say, thank God, that in our nation you're innocent until proven guilty. But this man was going to be whipped just to examine him. That was the law, and I want to remind you of something. When you read a hard statement like that, God said, submit yourself to this authority. That's a matter of liberty and a part of the one authority. He has the right to examine by scourging someone who's causing a public commotion. It may not be the fairest way to deal with men. What is Paul going to do? What's Paul going to do? The chief captain commands him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging, that he might know, wherefore they cried so against him. Is Paul going to say, well, my faith is in God, and I'm able to bear anything through Christ which strengthens me, and so that I can write that I've been beat six times in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm going to let them do it this time. Now, some people have that idea, that Christians are just supposed to go through life suffering, 
And the one you have a choice like this, you might as well go ahead and take the choice for suffering because God just loves to see his saints suffer. And it's a real matter of faith to be able to suffer. Here's the Apostle Paul, and if there was a man with greater faith in the New Testament, I'd like to meet him. The Apostle Paul, as they bound him with thongs, as he's being tied around a pillar possibly in that house, or his hands over his head, they're binding him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion that stood by, this is one of the funniest passages in the Bible. Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? <coughs> what a little question. What a little question, but what consternation it caused. Paul knew his laws, didn't he? Paul knew his laws. Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, the man who was binding him up, he went and told the chief captain, saying, Take heed what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. His chief captain had been a little impulsive, stepped outside the bounds of Roman law. Then the chief captain came and said to him, Tell me, art thou a Roman? He said, Yea. The chief captain answered, With a great sum obtained I this freedom. And that was a privilege in the Roman Empire. And Paul said, I didn't have to pay for mine. I was born free. <laughs> Look at the next words. I was freeborn, but look at chapter 12, verse 29. Then straightway they departed from him, which should have examined him. And the chief captain also was afraid, after he knew that he was a Roman, and because he had bound him. You know why? Because the Roman centurions and chief captains were under authority also. And if Caesar had said Roman citizens were not to be examined this way, uncondemned, and he went ahead and did it, Based on a little bit of knowledge we have about the authority in their government, he'd probably lose his life. They straightway left him and went their way. Now, I want to show you something. Paul could have suffered for the gospel's sake, couldn't he have? Could he have called it suffering for the gospel's sake? Only if you don't understand Scripture. Because to have said that that was suffering for the gospel's sake would have fallen into tempting the Lord thy God. When you have a legal recourse to avoid trouble like this, we ought to use the legal recourse. <clears throat> Simply to stand there and say, God, help me bear this beating, when all he had to say was, is it lawful for you to be the Roman uncondemned, is to tempt the Lord thy God. And I want to say something else as I bring this message to a close at this point. When we ask for God to bless our nation and to prosper our rulers and to guide our rulers, if you don't vote, you are tempting the Lord your God. I don't care how much you think the deck, the deck is stacked against you. God has given us an opportunity that we ought to use. It is a legal recourse we have. And to pray and ask God to give us leaders that are after his own heart and then not vote for the ones that are closest to his heart that we're able to detect by considering what men we have to vote for is the height of imprudence. It's, it's presuming upon God to do what you could have helped get done. You say, well, one vote doesn't count. Well, that is such a simplistic view. What if just a few more people like you have the same opinion? That it's not just one vote. And I want to say something else. That when a man in conscience toward God obeys and votes for a man, I believe God can multiply his votes. Let's be careful that we use the legal recourse that God gives us. Look at Acts 25. Acts chapter 25. 
Now Paul remains in custody. And he is tried on several occasions by being allowed to give his testimony. And the Jews bring false witnesses to try to condemn him. And he's in the midst of one of these sessions. But Festus, in verse 9, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem and there be judged of these things before me? Now that would be, that would be like you having the option to be judged by a jury of Bob Jones teachers versus a jury of DSS officers on a matter of child training. For Paul to have to go and stand in Jerusalem and be tried with the Jews was about the worst thing you could the worst thing you could imagine because all the odds would be against him to be tried there. Paul wanted to do the Jews a favor. See, the Jews had to travel to this city to be in Paul's trial. Paul, are you willing to go to Jerusalem? If you're so right in these matters, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and be tried before the Jews in these things? Then said Paul, and he knew the law, didn't he? I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender, or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. Now there's submission. If you think he's being disrespectful, look at what he just said. But if there be none of these things whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. Don't take me to Jerusalem where everything's going to be against me, you'll be turning me over to their hands. I appeal to Caesar. I ought to be judged here. This is Caesar's judgment seat. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, look, look at what the consternation Paul can throw them in. Answered, hast thou appealed to Caesar? Unto Caesar shalt thou go. Paul chose to be governed before Caesar's judgment seat rather than those Jews. At least he'd get a fairer hearing. And if you look at how the Jews treated Paul, they treated him rather fairly. You read about his trip across the Mediterranean Sea, his trip to Rome, and the way he was able to stay in his own house in Rome, the Romans treated him right well. The Jews, I don't think, would have given him such liberties to have met with the leadership of the Jews in Jerusalem and have preached the gospel to them for two years, like we read in the 28th chapter of Acts. Paul used a legal recourse to defend himself. Brother, we can write letters to our representatives. Sometimes we've done that. We can write letters to our governors. We've done that. We've got to do it more. We can sign petitions. We can participate in peaceful marches that do not break the law. We can vote intelligently. We can contribute time and money to campaigns. We can sue legally when there's a cause for it, a worthy cause for it, and so forth. These are legal options our nation has given us. It is a check on authority. We ought to use them when there is a need to use them. If we neglect these options of legal recourse, our faith is presumptuous. For us to ask God to help our leaders when we didn't help select our leaders, but out of slothfulness or ignorance, refuse to go and vote or even help, then how can we ask God to honor our obedience? We've, we've neglected a means he's given us. Let me show you a text. Look at Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. In the book of Esther, what person in the book of Esther thought about not using the means God had given them of legal recourse? 
Esther herself. Do you remember the reasoning that Mordecai used with her? When Haman's decree had gone forth that all the Jews were to be killed, Esther could have done something about it. And here's Mordecai reasoning with Esther that she ought to do something. Verse 13 of Esther 4, Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. The first thing you might as well know is that you're probably going to die too if you don't do something. Second thing, For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place, but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Do you hear that last point? Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? When we have referendums on our ballots, when we have men to choose between, who knoweth that God hasn't given his people in this nation an option to choose the man that would be the most God-fearing. Who knoweth? Why has God given us the right to vote in this nation? <clears throat> Why don't we have a descent by physical generation of kings over us? We have the right to vote. Why did God give us that right to vote? How do you know it wasn't for the influence of his providence through his obedient children properly voting in this nation? I appeal to all of you in the same words of Mordecai. How do you know that this isn't God's will on how he will turn things? Esther became queen. She had an advantage. God's given us a system in which we have a voice. Even though they may hate some of the things we stand for, when we go to the polls and vote, our vote is as well received as the vote of any humanist. We can speak as loudly as they can. You say, but there's more of them than that us. I've already covered that. God will bless us using the means that he's given us, and we ought to use those means. Some of you have come to me with this question. Is, there, is it ever right to go over your boss's head? Yes, there are times when it is right to go over your boss's head. That is legal recourse. Sometimes people might call it unethical, but it's something you've got to do sometimes, and it's based on this legal relationship. That your boss's boss is your boss's boss. And the boss of your boss's boss is usually the shareholders, and they own the company. And if you work for a man that is stealing from the company, or taking advantage of the company, there comes a time where in legal recourse, you ought to take appropriate measures if you have confronted the person. Sometimes it may not even be, be prudent to confront. And you should go over his head and go to your boss's boss to report someone that is stealing from the company. I knew a man once in the flesh. I'm cheating at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I knew a man once in the flesh who was faced with a decision relating to the chairman of the corporation that he worked for the chairman of the board, who was taking advantage of that company. And this man that I knew made a choice that the shareholders of that company are the true owners and the true masters. And if you follow back the logical chain of command, it always goes back to the shareholders. The little people who own the pieces of stock that own that company 
because they are the ones that paid for it and everyone else works at their pleasure. And there came a time where this man that I once knew in the flesh had to sit in his office with four government agencies wanting information of a confidential nature about that company so that they could remove that man from his office. And that was done. And it was based on the fact that you follow back that legal chain of command to the highest one. And you've got to make a decision. When you see someone taking advantage of a company, you've got to go back to the ultimate owners. If the ultimate owners, the shareholders of a company, know that something evil is going on and they allow it, that's one thing. That's their choice. But when something evil is going on that's taking advantage of their company, you have a job to the highest authority that you can go to. That would be your legal recourse. The Apostle Paul went to the highest authority he could, Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. And this man I once knew appealed to the shareholders of that company. And that man was removed from office. So the new chairman of the board was hired. And I've had several of you come to me and ask about situations that you've been perplexed by because your boss is doing things that is the detriment of your company. And you want to know are you still being submissive to authority by going over his head. You are being submissive to authority because you're obeying a higher authority. You ought to do it respectfully. You ought not to get into a mudflinging contest. You ought to confront your boss if you have that option. But you ought to obey the highest authority and go to them. I ask you this. If your wife was doing something, would you want your children to come to you? If one of your older children that you had put in authority over the younger children was doing something, would you want your younger children to tell you about something they were doing? You understand it when you see it that way. And in answer to that question, we always appeal to the highest authority we need to go to in order to get something done that would be right. Now, if you come to me with that question, it's a hard one, and yet it's not really that hard if we follow back the chain of command that is evident in every sphere of authority. It all exists from the top down. And the top authority in the company is not your boss. And neither is it the president, nor is it the chief executive officer. They are simply getting a paycheck. There are people that pay for that company, and they're the shareholders. And they're the ones that ought to be considered first and foremost in decisions like that. Did you know that the scriptures give you legal recourse in your families and in your church? Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17 is legal recourse. Though you're to submit to authority, Matthew 18 gives children that are members of this congregation option. An option if they're wives and can use scripture to use Matthew 18 even against parents. Wouldn't that be a terrible thing if we saw it? I would hope that a parent would listen before he ever got before the church. But it's there for their protection. That is a legal recourse for wives also. Matthew 18. Our tax system assumes and desires that every taxpayer in our nation avoid taxes to the best of their ability. That means that our government hopes and plans that every taxpayer will use every deduction and every means legally possible to minimize their tax. There's a reason for that. That's how they implement financial policies in our nation. If they want to encourage certain things, they write the tax law accordingly. They have given us that legal recourse to use deductions 
to reduce our income tax. Now, to reduce our income tax by following the legal, they're not loopholes, but they're legal provisions that the government's given us, is right. However, to not pay our taxes to make some political statement is wrong. The Bible has condemned that plainly. If you are so concerned about our income tax system as a very simple way to change our income tax laws, it's not by not paying your taxes. It's by having a referendum on a ballot by a man named Jarvis in the state of California. Do all of you remember that? I shall never forget that. And anyone who thinks they've ever helped the cause by not paying their taxes, they, they haven't helped a thing. The man Jarvis, in the most liberal state in the Union, was able to roll back property taxes over 50%. That was only, what, 10, 12 years ago or so. You remember that? Through legal recourse. We do not have to take the law into our own hands and not pay taxes. We are required by God to pay tribute to whom tribute is due. And listen, we all live off of Caesar's system. We all live off of Caesar's system. You pull the money out of your wallet. Somebody will say, well, the progressive income tax is unconstitutional. Whenever you hear that from somebody, ask them to open their wallet, and they're using money by a system that is not constitutional, and that's the Federal Reserve Bank. They use the system, we pay the system. Jesus would say the same thing if he were here. Show me a coin, and guess what it would say? Federal Reserve note. Render unto them what they're, what's owed them. Just like he said to Caesar. The Israelites benefited by Caesar protecting them. They owed him some money. We benefit by the system we have, whether it be constitutional or not, we owe them. There's legal recourse. Legal recourse is in you using your deductions. If you want to sign a petition for a referendum on the ballot in South Carolina to have our taxes rolled back from 7% to 3%, I'll sign it right below you. But don't stop filing and don't stop paying taxes. God is not in that matter. What's a check in authority? The legal recourse that we have. We've looked at a number tonight. God is the absolute check because he's the king in this universe. Prayer is a check by calling upon God to limit rulers. Scripture, scripture is a check because it teaches rulers on how they ought to behave themselves, and it gives you wisdom to behave yourself wisely under their authority. Proving all things is a check because you can call those in authority into question for something that might not be right. And just the knowledge of that provides a check of itself on the part of those in authority. Obedience is a check in that it gets God on your side and rulers on your side. Yielding is a check because it can cover great offenses by you pacifying the ruler that's angry with you. Legal recourse is a check because every sphere of authority has some means by which you can appeal on your behalf to that authority. Even in the Roman government, Paul could appeal to Caesar, Paul could appeal the law. I gave you two examples, and it worked. It saved him from scourging, and it saved him from being delivered to the Jews in Jerusalem. <clears throat> we'll look at a couple more. Next Sunday evening when I return, we'll look at the fact that rebuke is a check for children, for wives, for church members. Rebuke is a check when done properly, and last of all, rebellion becomes a check. When there comes a time when all the other checks have been used to no avail, and a person is forced, or there an attempt is made to force a person to disobey God, or to place their life in jeopardy unnecessarily, rebellion then becomes the right and godly thing to do. And we shall see some examples of that, Lord willing, when we meet again.